All right. Um, so we were in the middle of Epsom and Kitafel, but you've all read the introduction and religi religio laici, um, and it convinced you. All right. Uh, I guess what we'll talk about today is we'll start talking about, we'll start actually by talking a little bit about religio laici, and then we'll get back to where we were in Aslam and Akitafel. Um, what we'll read for Thursday is, if you have the um, penguin, it's um, pages 170 to 220, in the, or 219 in the penguin. No, what am I saying? 170 includes Wielichi. Uh, 190, that is the um, translations from Lucretius, um, and then the, um, uh, and also translations from Horace, um, and then the um, Ode to the Memory of Anne Killigrew. So that's, um, so some translation, and then um, the Ode on Anne Killigrew, yeah. Yeah, so in, I got them wrong the first time. So page 190 through 219 of um, The Penguin. And um, I guess my question is um, something that like never gets taught except in a class on Dryden alone is his long poem, The Hind and the Panther, um, which I think no non-expert on Dryden has ever read more than once. Um, we could do it. It's about why after um, starting out as a Puritan and then in Religio Laetia, he basically tells you why he's an Anglican. In The Hind and the Panther, he tells you why he became Catholic. Um, it's long and um, uh, depends how much you like Dryden, especially in this more serious mode, whether you want to read it or not. Um, I'm, I'm leaning towards not reading it, um, but does anyone have a strong desire to read it? Hard to believe. <laughs> not even you, Tina? Oh, I do, but not just uh, else <laughs> To your strong desires? <laughs> um, have you read it already? I've read it once. Okay, see, th so there is a person who wants to read it twice. <laughs> so <laughs> I was wrong about uh, people only reading it once. Um, all right, well, maybe we, <laughs> if you want to talk about it sometime, we can do that. Um, you may change your mind. I have a feeling you won't, but you may change your mind. Um, so we're looking at Dryden in a, especially in religio, um, religio laici, we're looking in a more, somewhat more serious mode. Um, let's start, though, with a moment in um, religio laici. If you go to um, the, um, to where? <laughs> to where I don't have my pen. Um, Go to around line uh, 276. So do people remember what the context for the poem is, um, if you read the head note um, especially? Anyone? Oh, isn't that interesting? Yes. It's in response to the preface of a translation. Yes, nice. Okay, that's part of it. So there. So okay, the issue is um, a sort of interesting one, which is that there's a um, French Catholic priest um, named Simon, 
uh, published a book that is part of a 17th century movement. You, you may be most familiar with it from Spinoza. Um, to read the Bible um, as at least in part a human artifact. Um, partly because um, we're forced to read the Bible as a human artifact um, because there are obvious errors in transmission. There are obvious places where the text is corrupt in one way or another. So um, what became known as the higher criticism starts in the 17th century. And it's where people stop treating it um, entirely as a sacred book, but say, what if we were to consider it um, as, a, as a document from antiquity and engage in the kind of literary archaeology and literary analysis and historical analysis that people have been doing um, on Homer um, for about 150 years already or 200 years already. What if we start doing that to the Bible? Um, and it's, if you guys know, as I think some of you do, um, the contemporary distinction between the, in, um, in the first four books of the Bible um, between the J writer, the, the E writer, and the P writer, um, it's generally agreed, and this agreement was, um, th this idea began um, in the 17th century. Um, it's generally agreed that there are three main authors of the first four books of, of Genesis through Numbers, and that those authors, their, their three contributions are put together um, by later editors to turn it into a single work, um, but the single work has contradictions within it because it's actually, it's a mosaic of three different um, works. And the J writer is the one who in English um, tells stories about the Lord. Um, that is the Lord said unto Moses, say unto the children of Israel, etc. The E and J is therefore Jehovah or Yahweh. Um, the E writer is the one who talks about God um, in the beginning. Well, actually this is not the E writer, but um, um, God said unto Moses, or um, then God um, struck Noah, or whatever. Um, e for Elohim, um, and those are stories that in the Hebrew are the, the deity is known as Elohim. And then the P writer is um, a writer who puts things together and sort of says mammoth um, philosophical and theological things, so that the very beginning of the Bible um, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth is the P writer, the priestly, P for priestly writer. Um, that um, analysis, the analysis um, that allowed people to see that this is, um, that these three different major writers were at work in uh, the first four books um, was an analysis that um, has its origins in the 17th century. Um, so Simon is one of the people doing that analysis. Um, he wrote a book um, about the Old Testament and what he was very interested in are places where there was clearly something wrong. Um, now he was doing this, he's a Catholic priest, and he thought that what he was doing was um, essentially saying you can't, against Protestantism, he was saying, you cannot rely on the Bible alone because the text of the Bible is imperfect. So when Luther and when the Reformation said that um, 
what religious belief should be predicated on is human conscience in um, its understanding of um, biblical um, uh, storytelling and biblical doctrine and biblical rule giving and the biblical picture of God and of virtue. Um, what Simone was saying is, well, actually, if you try to do it with the, just the Bible, um, you'll be misled because the Bible actually is not a perfect document. It was originally perfect, perhaps, but um, over time, entropy and errors crept in. And then a friend of Dryden's, Dickinson, translated this um, fairly scandalous work into English. And Dryden is, this poem is in the form of um, an epistle, a letter, to the friend Dickinson who had translated it. The idea of, he says this in the introduction, the idea of writing um, a poem as a letter is something that goes back to Augustan Rome. Um, some of what we'll read are Dryden's translations of Horace's um, epistles. But they're basically um, letters in the form, or poems in the form of letters, or letters in the form of poems. Um, because they're poetry, they're also supposed to be public. That is, um, you see there's a little bit of a dramatic element to this, not as in Encyclopedia Dramatica, um, but dramatic as in here's a person talking about what he really thinks to a friend. Um, and it's instructive and useful to see this straightforward um, and frank and candid um, letter from one friend to another. Um, so that's, that's the form of this. But what Dryden here is um, talking about and arguing and worrying a little bit is um, the question, what does our belief, what does our Christian belief rest on? Um, what can it rest on? And the, the possibilities, um, there seem to be several possibilities. One is we don't know what to believe, period. Um, that's the most dangerous possibility, and that's what people found dangerous in what Simone said, that we just don't know what to believe. We can't know. Um, the one thing that's supposed to tell us what to believe is corrupt. A second possibility is actually we can figure out the way the ancient Greeks and um, other philosophical people did, that there has to be a god. Um, the universe couldn't exist unless there were a god to create it. There really has to be such a god. Um, and therefore, we can believe in God without needing the Bible and without needing Christianity. That is, you can have a more general belief in God that doesn't require the specificity of um, religion, where what religion is for Dryden is um, Christianity, some version of Christianity. Um, he's not thinking at all of Islam, which is not for him a live um, idea. Uh, it's, it's not something that he's thought about or studied, but he is thinking about polytheism. And um, his idea is that, um, that he wants to defend the only real, what for him is the only real and live monotheistic religion um, with its doctrine and its details 
against other possible religions or against the idea of God without a religion um, that, that is connected to that idea. So, a sec so one possibility is we just know nothing. We're completely skeptical. Um, there's no reason to believe in God. The only um, texts that tell us to believe in God are themselves corrupt. And, you know, and th this is a perennial argument. In the present day, you'll see Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins um, making that argument, and, and more, saying that it's in fact impossible for there to be a God. Um, that's not something that Dryden is worrying about. But there's no reason to believe in God. Um, that's one thing that discovering that the Bible is not infallible may tell you. A second possibility is there is reason to believe in God, but the Bible is not the reason. Um, and that's the deist idea, um, that the Bible isn't the reason to believe in God. Um, the third possibility is the Bible is basically right, but because it's corrupt, it needs to be supplemented by the authorities, the authoritative church that knows the truth and knows how to interpret and understand those parts of it that um, are clearly can't be right the way, they're, um, the way you see them in the Bible. Um, and therefore, what you have to do is accept that Holy Mother Church knows better than you and that if something in the Bible um, seems incoherent or um, contrary to church teaching, um, the church knows better than you do. So um, accept the authority of the Catholic Church, that is the Roman Catholic Church, um, and accept it completely. Um, a fourth possibility is that um, there are um, places in the Bible where it seems to be self-contradictory. At that point, you have to consult your own conscience and your own inward light and your own sense of inspiration. And this leads to radical Protestantism. Um, more radical, although part of the, part of the movement of Protestantism um, that had um, brought the English Revolution um, to, to, to the overthrow of Charles I, um, the number of radical movements at the time, of radical Protestant movements at the time, were extraordinary. And the one thing that they shared was, um, was their radicalness. The only one that still survives is Quakerism. Um, which was originally a 17th century radical movement. Unitarianism also sort of survives, but not, um, it's not quite radical in the same way. But there were um, the Shakers you know died out, but you, know, you will probably also know that their views were a little bit more radical than the Quakers are. And the reason they died out is that there came a time when they thought that it was wrong um, to ever have sex and ever have children and wrong to proselytize for, for Shakerism. So the last Shakers died out actually in the last 20 years or so. Um, at the end of the 19th century um, they, and beginning of the 20th century, the Shakers um, decided it was time to stop reproducing. Um, there were also um, groups called ranters um, and um, political, they had, they had political, um, religio-political alliances and, and the people called levelers and so on. Um, there were tons of them. There's a good book um, by Christopher Hill called The World Turned Upside Down, which is about all these radical Protestant religious movements in England in the mid-17th century in what's called the Interregnum before the restoration of Charles II. Um, 
one of the most interesting ones are the ones called the antinomians. There were various antinomian views, but the Calvinist idea was that you were predestined to salvation or damnation from the time the universe was created, before you were conceived. Um, nothing you did um, under the doctrine of predestination, nothing you did could ever make a difference. Um, so why not party every second? Um, because it didn't matter whether you were virtuous or not. Um, so some antinomian um, Christians engaged in um, things that would make the Marquis de Sade blush because for them it didn't matter. Um, and if they were going to go to hell, they were going to go to hell. If they were going to go to heaven, they were going to go to heaven. If they were going to go to hell, they should at least not waste the um, few decades they had on earth. Um, and if they were going to go to heaven, it wouldn't matter what they were doing. So obviously for someone who's politically middle of the road, moderate, let's say, because that in fact is what Dryden most asserts for himself is, is the difficulty but importance of moderation. Moderation is not a wishy-washy compromise, but the hardest thing in the world as far as Dryden is concerned. For someone who is a moderate, um, this idea of hippie radicalism um, that you can see in um, the Protestant interpretation of a sometimes unclear scripture where you then interpret on the basis of your own conscience and the inner light that comes to you, that was also something dangerous for Dryden. Um, so those are the various possibilities for understanding um, what, was, what was confusing about the Bible once you saw that it can't possibly be um, verbatim the word of God. Um, and because if there are errors in it, the question is what kind of error correcting mechanism is appropriate? Um, there are errors in it. What kind of error correcting mechanism is appropriate? And um, the title, which in English means the religion of a layman, um, the confession of a layman, is basically saying, um, in a way, because I'm not an expert on these issues, because I'm not an expert on these issues, I'm actually really well placed to describe what religion is for the normal person, the average person, not the person who has expert knowledge. Um, since, since the experts are in service of their communities, as an ordinary member of the community, um, I am going to try to describe um, what my own religious beliefs are and argue for them, um, but argue for them not out of, um, out of expert and um, abstruse and esoteric knowledge, but out of ordinary human experience. Now, what you brought up, Elizabeth, about the, um, um, the creeds is that there are essentially um, two major statements of Christian belief from um, the early part of the first millennium. There's what's called the Apostles' Creed, which is the simplest um, statement of Christian belief. And basically, the Apostles' Creed is a belief in God who created the universe 
um, and a belief that Jesus, that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, um, to earth in order um, to um, bring us to salvation. Um, and the Apostles' Creed is um, clearly Christian because it's um, about Jesus Christ as well as about God the Father. Um, and it is um, the simplest and um, most straightforward expression of Christian ideas. Um, after the Apostles' Creed, however, um, the, a council of bishops in Nicaea in the fourth century um, came up with what is now pretty much um, standard Catholic and, um, and fairly widespread Protestant doctrine, which is the do doctrine of the divinity of Christ. That is, um, the Bible says or seems to say um, and maybe at one point actually does say um, that Christ is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Son of God in a special way. Um, and at one point may even be saying that Jesus is God himself. Um, that is never quite explicitly said, however. Um, the Council of Nicaea came up with the Nicene Creed, which basically says that basically comes up with the, um, the uh, subsequent claim for the Holy Trinity, that there's one God, that that God is in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. The Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Holy Ghost. The Son is not the Holy Ghost. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Ghost is God. Um, and that's the mystery of the Trinity. So what you have is a sort of non-transitive um, non idea of equality. That is, God, the Father equals God, the Son equals God, but the Father does not equal the Son. Um, and that's, um, people got persecuted for saying that they didn't understand this and got persecuted for trying to understand it in different ways. And there were all sorts of um, religious battles about this doctrine. But that's essentially what the Nicene Creed says. Is, um, it, it's the idea of the Son as co-equally and co-eternally God with the Father and the Holy Ghost as co-equal and co-eternal with and also God um, just as much as the Son is and just as much as the Father is. So that is either more familiar or um, more, more, uh, or more difficult to um, take in than the Apostles' Creed, which, ha which has, um, certainly has the virtue of um, a pure and, and luminous simplicity about it is the, the philosophically more difficult Nicene Creed. Um, Athanasius, his, the, the Athanasian Creed was one in support of the Nicene Creed. And he, what he adds to that, and this is the thing that is very troubling to Dryden, is that if you don't believe this, and if you haven't learned this from the church, then you will be damned. Um, so it's a very unforgiving idea, which essentially says that only Christians who have been instructed by the infallible church in the right and sound and true doctrine of the Trinity 
um, have a chance for salvation. And that goes very strongly against the idea that conscience has anything to do with salvation, or even good works. It's that you have to know the right thing, but the only way to know the right thing is to, is to be completely subservient to um, those who are announcing a doctrine which is not itself in the Bible, but is a human um, philosophical interpretation of the Bible. Um, and if you, can't, if you don't find yourself able to accept that, um, then you will find yourself in hell. Um, and that's the thing that Dryden um, really doesn't. Um, that's, that's another direction he doesn't want to go in. So what he's trying to do in Religio Leici um, is to come up with a way of saying that the Bible is important and tradition is important and um, learning from your elders and betters is important without falling into any of the traps that those um, three um, claims or ideas or doctrines um, could easily lead you to fall in. So he's really trying to, trying to tread a maze there um, or to say that, that the kind of um, Anglicanism, the kind of Protestantism um, that you could find in England at the time at its best did tread this maze, avoided these traps, but that the traps were always there um, and that you could err on either side very, very easily. You could think that whatever the church said was right or you could think that whatever you thought was right. Um, and it was very difficult to see, and what he's trying to do in this poem is to, is to show how you could find a middle way among all these things, but that middle way is hard. Um, it's partly hard because when you're talking about absolute issues like God and the human soul and so on, it almost feels from the nature of the case that you have to take an absolute position that the position, um, by its very nature, has to be an extreme one. Um, because there is a truth, and the truth can't somehow be in the middle. Dryden understands that and accepts that. But what he's trying to do, you could say, is to um, um, get all the difficulty that kind of is a criterion or a guarantee that you are treating the situation seriously. People become extremists because being extreme is always being serious. Um, you can't, um, you know that you're, being ex that you're being serious if you take an extreme position. Um, so what Dryden is trying to do is get all the seriousness that is guaranteed by an extreme position um, and show that actually, um, and all the difficulty that is guaranteed by an extreme position, because extreme positions are always difficult ones to sustain, um, he's trying to get all of that into the commitment that it would be required of you if you were to actually take the middle ground. Um, as though the middle ground was actually the hardest of all. 
Um, extremism is easy. Um, avoiding the traps of extremism, that's what's really hard. And that's what Dryden is pushing. And obviously, I mean, to say what you um, will, uh, will be expecting me to say now, um, obviously the heroic couplet, again, is a good formal device for balancing between extremes in a way which is itself um, more knife-edged difficult, knife-edgedly difficult, um, than uh, taking one or the other of those positions and excluding the one that you don't take or excluding all of those that you don't take. So that's, the, that's what Dryden is doing here. Now, as a political and as a religious and as a philosophical um, uh, stance, it's interesting, these things are interesting on their own, and it's something that you'll see in the history of English literature. Um, probably more in the history of English literature and, and of English philosophy um, nationally than in other national literatures and philosophies. That is, England, um, in, people in England keep being torn between um, radical points of view in both religion and philosophy and are interested in the fact that both sides are attractive. Um, you won't quite find um, the same um, um, ambivalence in a lot of other European um, literary histories and cultures. You'll find some, but not quite as much. Um, and that's, so it's interesting for that reason. And you'll see the same arguments, um, very surprisingly, um, the kind of argument that Dryden is making in Religio Laetitia, you'll find in Trollope 150 years later. That is, if you, if you guys have ever read Trollope, and if you haven't, um, you have an amazing treat in store for you. Um, um, you've read them and you don't agree? You're giving me a skeptical look. No, okay. Um, but the um, Barchester Chronicles um, in Trollope are also about how easy it is to be radical and how difficult it is, but how right it is not to be. Um, that's what Trollope's novels, especially his, his novels about um, English religious life, English church life, um, um, that's what those novels are about also. Um, they're about what William James will later call taking a moral holiday, that it's okay to take a moral holiday. So that's the general thing as a history of English literary culture or um, uh, religious philosophical literary culture. Um, the, this is interesting um, for that reason. Um, it's also interesting as, a gen as um, leading to some general principles about um, what poetry can do, um, what a poet can do, and what a reader of poetry can do. And all of these things for Dryden are seamless. That is, poetry does what it does, or poetry is an example of um, being able to look at things from all sides, which for Dryden is the great virtue. The heroic couplet, I will say again, and probably again and again, but I'll try to stop myself. Um, the heroic couplet is about seeing things from all sides, saying um, on the one hand, but on the other hand, and yet putting these things in terms of just one hand and the other hand is itself wrong. Although, on the other hand, it has virtues to it. 
um, the heroic couplet is always doing that. It's always balancing things and then balancing the balanced things against other balanced things and so on. Um, so it's so poetry itself, the nature of poetry, its form, it's the fact that um, it takes the um, the form that it does, that it rhymes, that it's metrical, that it's the alternation of opposites, that's that it's the harmonizing of things that by themselves are are contradictory contradictory to each other. All of these things are examples for Dryden of what a certain kind of, um, of capacious balancing makes possible. Um, to put it another way, you might say, and again, the title is suggesting this, that um, you might ask, what right does Dryden have to talk about this stuff? Who is he to talk about what's good to do in politics? Who is he to talk about what the true religion is or, or the true attitude towards religion should be? You may feel the same way now about Hollywood stars coming out for um, one or another political candidate. You know, if they're on your side, you say, yay, Alec Baldwin, it's so great um, that you're doing this, but Bruce Willis, how can you be such a jerk? Um, or vice versa. Um, but um, if they're on your side, you tend not to, not to get down on them for having political opinions. If they're on the other side, you think, why would anyone listen to you? You're just an actor. What do you know about politics? You could ask the same thing about poets. That is, so Dryden has a way with words. Why should we care what he has to say about a political or a religious or a philosophical issue? What makes poets into philosophers? Does anything make poets into philosophers? Is there anything that makes a writer, a literary writer, um, someone with, with um, philosophical or cognitive authority? This is a question that is still a very live one. The whole idea in arguments about deconstruction and the um, movements that followed deconstruction in the last 30 years is, um, is there philosophical, are there important philosophical conclusions to be drawn from literary works? And um, what people like Derrida and Demon, if you know who they are, or even Foucault um, and Lacan are, and are saying is absolutely the literary works are actually more deeply philosophical than the philosophers are. Um, that's a strong claim that they're making. So again, I just want to say that this is a live issue. For Dryden, there's an implied answer to this, which is to be a poet, and to be a poet who's in any way um, effective as a poet, you have to be able to think in certain ways, to think with a certain kind of clarity and a certain kind of acknowledgement of the different ways of viewing something. And you have to know a lot in order to be able to think those ways. So the very fact that you can write poetry um, and that you can write good poetry is itself both an example of what a more general kind of good citizenship, where I mean that in the strongest possible way, as the strongest possible virtue. Um, being a good poet is an example of being a good citizen, um, and also a guarantee that you are a good analyst 
of what being a good citizen would be, that you're the kind of good citizen who is a good citizen because you're thinking about what it means to be a good citizen. Wait, this is Dryden's view? Yeah. Is it implied or is it? I think it's, it's implied, but it's implied everywhere. So it's, it's um, are you skeptical when I say that? Do you think he's just doctrinaire and dogmatic? Is that? No, I just don't know if you were talking about maybe like Foucault or Dryden. Oh, well, no, it's, it, Foucault is not for good citizenship, uh, quite the reverse. Um, but the question is um, what kind of cognitive authority in realms like religion or philosophy or politics does being a literary writer give you? And the one thing that people like Dryden and Milton and Foucault and Leo Strauss, I mean, Leo Strauss is a right-wing maniac, and Foucault, you could say, is a left-wing maniac, although that's sort of, the maniac part is true, the left-wing part is a little bit harder. Um, but what all of them agree on is that it's the writers who really know things. What all of them, they're, all of them are essentially disagree with Plato. Um, who basically, Plato says, writers seem to know things, but they don't, and they're only destructive um, because they're so good at seeming to know things without actually knowing things. So again, if you, actors, I think, are a good example now. That is, um, actors are very convincing because they're so good at um, portraying competence in whatever it is that they're supposed to be portraying competence in on screen. Um, you know, if, if you ever, if you guys saw the notorious uh, Joaquin Phoenix, um, uh, David Letterman um, um, appearance, have people seen that? Well, it's, it's always interesting to see actors on talk shows um, because you can be stunned by how these eloquent, with it, completely self-possessed um, uh, 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 people when they have lines written for them, are just inarticulate and have nothing to say when they don't. And that, um, that fact about actors, that they're very convincing uh, because when they play roles, they really play those roles well and they really are commanding, that that fact about them seems to give them an authority that two minutes thought will tell you they really don't have. Um, really, what do they know about these issues that they make their pet projects? They may, you know, some are smart, some are dumb. Um, some have done the research, some haven't. Um, some have reason to do it, like Michael J. Fox. Some, some are doing it um, as a hobby. Um, but they're normal people as far as what they understand about um, the issues that they're interested in. Um, yet they have commandingly persuasive power. So if you're the kind of person as you, I think should be, who's skeptical of actors um, who get involved in politics and who are influential just because they're famous actors. Um, if, you're, if, if that isn't enough for them to be persuasive, the fact that they're famous actors, um, you could, if you were Plato, take the same line about poets. Now, the argument that Dryden and others, including Foucault and including Strauss, um, are making is no, you can't be a writer unless you're thinking, um, unless your thought is already pretty deep. You can't be a good writer. You can't be a writer whom people like unless your thought is already pretty deep. Whereas you can be an actor whom people like 
even if you're not at all deep. You know, think of Lindsay Lohan. Um, so the, um, that, however Plato thinks the same about writers, Dryden, like Foucault, like Strauss, um, disagrees with him about that. So one place to look, just the reason I bring this up, this is all um, a sort of uh, mammoth introduction to, uh, to a very specific point, is that if you go to, um, pay, to um, line 276 of Religio Laici, um, here is an objection that Dryden needs to answer. And I think it's an important one um, about interpretation. Oh, but, says one, this is at line 276, oh, but, says one, tradition set aside, where can we hope for an unerring guide? So if you no longer accept um, traditional stopgap measures, I guess go, go before that to see how, um, how, how those go, um, that, um, I guess start at line 251. For some who have his secret meaning guessed have found our author not too much a priest. That is, they think that he's simply trying to tear everything down. For fashion's sake, he seems to have recourse to pope and councils and tradition's force, but he that old traditions could subdue, could not but find the weakness of the new. So some people think that Simon is um, pretending to be pro-Catholic by saying we need the church to supplement um, the, the Bible itself, which has a lot of, um, a lot of errors have crept in down the centuries. Um, but some people think that Simone is only saying that, but he's actually um, working on a much more radical um, point of view. David Hume, whom we'll have occasion to talk about, has a famous essay on miracles, um, which is one of the great essays. Do you know it, Matt, the essay on miracles? Um, it's one of the great essays of 18th century philosophy. But basically, David Hume says, how can you define a miracle? And he says, well, a miracle is something that um, we have no explanation for. Um, and for something to be a miracle, there can be no explanation for it, um, which is more likely than the thing itself. So if um, we hear, so people say you should believe in Christianity um, because God made mountains move and because Christ walked on water. And Hume says, well, if there are miracles like that that are reported in the Bible, um, however, which is more likely, that Christ walked on water or that some people heard some other people saying, dude, it looked like he was walking on water. It's amazing. He must be the son of God. And then they thought, yeah, that was really cool. They would say that they saw it themselves. Um, and basically, Hume is saying urban legends or religious legends um, they're very, very easy to get started. Which is more likely, that Christ walked on water or that it's a legend? And the answer is, well, it's a legend. So basically, what Hume is saying is that any report of a miracle is kind of self-defeating um, because if you're trying to decide whether to believe a report of a miracle or not, all likelihood is that it's false because there's always going to be a better explanation than that a real miracle occurred. And even if you yourself see the miracle, 
there's a better explanation than that a real miracle occurred, namely that you're hallucinating, or that you dreamt it, or that it was an optical illusion, or something like that. Little kids go to see magic shows and they think it's real magic. Adults go to see magic shows and they don't think it's magic. They think it's really cool that I don't know how this was done. Um, but they don't think that it's magic. And um, so Hume is basically saying, um, therefore, the, anyone who says the reason we should believe in Christianity is because of the miracles that were performed is showing the reason that we shouldn't believe in it. Because any explanation other than that it was a real miracle is more likely than that it was a real miracle. So this is a really actually a devastating critique of, um, of religions that depend upon the testimony of miraculous um, um, occurrences. It's a devastating critique of that. And then Hume at the very end says, so the real miracle is that we still believe in Christianity, and that truly is a miracle. And he's claiming that he is a Christian at that point and saying, now we can see that the best miracle of all, wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles, is that we believe in Christianity when it would be so easy to give rational explanations for the so-called miracles, and yet we don't. Um, but that's false, that, and that's what some people are accusing Simone of, that he is seeming to have recourse to pope and councils and traditions force. He seems to say, because we don't, we're not quite sure about the Bible, we should believe in the Catholic Church. But these people who are against him say, he that all traditions could subdue, that is, since Simon could um, show that the Bible, as we now have it, cannot be accurate. So someone who could defeat the Bible, defeat biblical writ, he that all traditions could subdue, could not but find the weakness of the new. That is, if he can show there's stuff wrong with the Bible, he'll have no trouble showing that the church is wrong, for example, when it condemns Galileo, um, that the church is wrong when it says the sun um, goes around the earth. If scripture, though derived from heavenly birth, has been but carelessly preserved on earth, if God's own people, who of God before knew what we know, and had been promised more in fuller terms of heaven's assisting care, and who did neither time nor study spare to keep this book untainted, unperplexed. If God's own people let in gross errors to corrupt the text, omitted paragraphs, embroiled the sense with vain traditions, stopped the gaping fence, which every common hand pulled up with ease, what safety from such brushwood helps as these? So he's saying, why should you believe the Catholic Church? These people think Simone is saying. Why should you believe the Catholic Church when we can't any longer believe the Bible as we've received it, and when even the chosen people who worked unbelievably hard to keep the sacred text accurate and um, thought about every jot and tittle in the Hebrew Bible and worked incredibly hard about figuring out every possible contradiction. And yet they couldn't prevent errors from creeping in. And what they did was they, they used stopgap measures. Um, that is, they, they um, um, uh, 
stopped the gaping fence with vain traditions. They added Mishnah and Gemara and Midrash to explain the contradictions that crept in to um, their versions of the text. If that happens, um, how can the Catholic Church think that it did any better? What safety from such brushwood helps as these? That is just bringing brushwood up to the holes in the fence and acting as though now you have something secure when every wolf can just push it aside and any match can set it afire. If written words from time are not secured, how can we think have oral sounds endured? So even if the written work from ancient times is not accurate, how can we think that the Gospels, which were, which were handed down as traditions before they were written down, how can they be secure? Which thus transmitted, if one mouth has failed, immortal lies on ages are entailed. So if one person gets something wrong, then that becomes gospel, figuratively and literally, even though it's inaccurate, for ages to come. And that some have been, and that some such have been, is proved too plain. That is, Simon has shown that there are errors in the gospel if if we consider interest, church, and gain. Um, and so there not only are there clearly mistakes, but there are reasons for those mistakes, which is that um, the church had interest in the doctrine of purgatory, for example, um, and wanted and saw ways of making money and so on. Yeah. Oh, was your hand not up? OK. So given all this, it seems clear that Simone is um, is destroying the church as um, well as the accuracy of the Bible. Um, so someone tries to defend the church by saying, we have no choice. Oh, but, says one, tradition set aside, where can we hope for an unerring guide? For since the original scripture has been lost, all copies disagreeing, maimed the most, or Christian faith can have no certain ground, or truth in church tradition must be found. So basically what the pro-Catholic church position now is going to be, which Dryden is going to refute, but the pro or rebut, the pro-Catholic church um, position is going to be, you can't rely on the Bible. It's full of contradiction. If you don't rely on the Bible, you either will give up your belief altogether or you will rely on the Catholic Church. And that's the idea that Dryden wants to rebut. And essentially, his rebuttal is the middle ground rebuttal, which is that it's true that we don't know every jot and tittle and their contradictions and there are problems in the details and a lot of the details um, don't fit together. But there's also, to use the language of information theory, massive redundancy in the Bible, um, which, is, which means that everything important, what you'll find is that everything important um, harmonizes with everything else that's important. The places where there are, are um, issues and questions and where we can't really know what the truth is, 
those places are partly in question just because it's not obvious what the truth is. But so much of what's in the Bible is obvious, obvious and, and there are errors which are obvious errors. So much of it is obvious that the really important thing to see is that the more obvious that you have a right reading in the Bible, the more obvious it is that you do, um, the more you can rely on it. What makes a reading in the Bible obvious? Well, it's some combination of, and he's going to give you a list of the things that make it obvious, but it's going to be some um, combination of various things that make it possible for us to interpret any text, whatever. Um, so the reason I bring this up here, I want to, I want to get back for um, half an hour anyhow to Absalom and Achitophel. Um, but the reason I bring it up here um, is because what you're getting here is a theory of reading poetry, a theory of what's called hermeneutics, of interpreting um, poetry. Um, the, have, do people know the word hermeneutics? Um, that, so if you take a literary theory class or a class in the history of liter literary criticism, um, it's a word that you will hear. Hermeneutics is, the, is um, I guess, often defined as the science of interpretation. Um, and the idea, it's, it, it originally came out of biblical interpretation, and the question is, how do you interpret um, a biblical text? The word hermeneutic um, actually comes from Hermes, um, the uh, Greek messenger god who was also, um, an, who, there was a, an Egyptian cult of him as having written um, a highly allegorical book that it was very, very hard to interpret into um, into literal language. And so those who attempted to read this mystical book, um, what they were doing was an act of interpretation that then got named hermeneutics after um, Hermes Trismegistus, um, thrice great Hermes. Um, so hermeneutics is the science of interpretation. Um, and the question is, how do you interpret um, an ambiguous sentence, the idea being that really every sentence is ambiguous, that it's impossible um, to interpret um, with 100% certainty that you're interpreting something right. Um, and the question of interpretation, it goes back at least to Augustine, who um, basically says, I don't understand how, you, how it's possible to understand a sentence. Because what happens is, um, I read a word, and then I read another word, and the first word could mean um, a bunch of things. Um, and um, you know, if if I read to take a famous or not so famous example, um, if I read if the first word of the sentence is the word time, um, I don't know whether that's a noun or um, an adverb or a verb. Um, time the runner as she runs around the track. There is an imperative verb. Um, time is always passing. There, it's a noun. Time to plant tears, the almanac said. There, it's uh, um, an adverbial noun. Um, so I read the first word, and it could be a bunch of different things, but I don't know what it is. Um, then I read the second word, which let's say is flies, 
and now I have time flies. And that's a sad, true sentence, assuming that time is a noun and that flies is a verb. Time flies, how sad life is. Um, but what if instead um, I'm a referee at the flies car race, and it's my job to see how quickly the flies are flying around the track. So what's my job to do? It's to time flies. Um, so I get my little stopwatch out, and I say, go. And the flies buzz around the room, and they come back. And then I stop my stopwatch, and I've timed the flies. Um, so how do we know if we see the sentence time flies? Why did you all assume I meant um, that, that temporality is always escaping our grasp as we hustle towards death? And not that I was saying that flies flying around a room um, should, we should try and figure out who holds the world record or the room record for the flies. Um, so Augustine basically says each of the words has multiple meanings. They can be put together in multiple ways. We only know what the sentence really means when we have the whole sentence in our mind. But we can only have the whole sentence in our mind if we know what each of the words means. So this is called the hermeneutical circle. Um, that is, that we can only know what a sentence means when we know what each word in the sentence means, but we can only know what each word in the sentence means when we know what the whole sentence means. Um, and this is something that sometimes doesn't seem to be a problem, sometimes does, but in theory, it's, um, it's logically an unanswerable difficulty. Um, how do you get out of this circle? How do you know what a sentence means unless you know what the words in the sentence mean? But how do you know what any word in the sentence means unless you know what the sentence means? Um, so there's a lot of philosophy and literary theory and literary criticism about this. Um, and it's something that's of concern to poets. Um, it's particularly of concern to poets because they do want their meanings to come out of their words more than anyone. Um, Robert Frost, some of you will know, um, was, was, um, had a very famous response to someone who asked him the meaning of one of his poems, and his response was, if I could have said it any better, I would have. Um, so here's this, you know, poetry is obscure, and you want to know what these words in, in this order, in these sentences mean, and what the poet says is, I, I did my best. Um, that's why I wrote this, these words in this order here. Um, so the question of the meaning of poetry is a question that is more or less um, present to, um, to or, or anxiety about whether the meaning is communicable um, is more or less present and more or less something that any real poet is thinking about. Um, will I, am I um, saying what I want to say with these words. Do these words say what I want to say? And you'll often find thoughtful, philosophical poets um, raising this very issue in their poems. The 18th century poets um, as much and sometimes more um, than other poets. Dryden, Milton also, but um, Dryden in the Restoration, and then um, Pope, and in other ways, um, Dr. Johnson. Um, raise these issues over and over again. For Dr. Johnson, this question um, of 
interpreting the Bible. For Johnson, it's going to come up as a question of interpreting Shakespeare. That is, that the Shakespearean texts are also all corrupt. Um, there is no uh, version of anything Shakespeare wrote which is word perfect or anything like word perfect. Um, we know that errors have crept in to every single Shakespearean play. There are no manuscripts, or there's really only one, and it's only um, for a page, and it's of a play that no one reads anyhow. Um, and Shakespeare was one of five different authors of this play. But essentially, there are no manuscripts um, for Shakespeare's plays. Um, no copies of Shakespeare's plays, only printed versions. And they all have errors. And Johnson tackles the question, what do we do with, with these errors when we know that we never, that they're not what Shakespeare wrote? Um, does that then mean um, that we can't um, rely on any Shakespearean plays, whatever, whatever literary reliance is? Um, Dryden is already asking that question here about the Bible, um, raising it as a question. But the point is for Dryden and for Johnson um, that that's a question that you can ask even about letter-perfect texts because there's still the question, is it a noun, is it a verb, is it an adverb? Um, is it one syllable, is it two? Does that word mean then what it means now? Does line, do line and join rhyme? There are all sorts of questions that we can only answer by assuming the answer to begin with. When I said a couple of weeks ago that in the 17th century, line and join were perfect rhymes, how do we know this since, there, since no one recorded um, the 17th century? We only know it because they're always used as perfect rhymes. Um, so that's a circular argument. And the question is, are circular arguments necessarily wrong? That's the question that Dryden is actually raising in Religio Laici. Are circular arguments that we know what the Bible means even though it's corrupt because we know what the Bible means? Is that wrong? And for Dryden, he's going to um, assert with the full sophistication of his genius that no, that's, the, that's, what is, that's what's right about it, not what's wrong about it. That we know what the Bible means because we know what the Bible means, that's a strength and not a weakness of the position that he's taking. That's a strength and not a weakness of the, um, the Anglican, the version of Anglicanism the version of English Protestantism that in Religio Laici he's defending. Um, because it means that human meaning is not something that occurs in a kind of radically private context where we can never be sure of anything, but that human meaning always arises out of a multitude of different interactions and different ideas and different thoughts arises out of a social context where being with other people and, and arguing with them and talking with them and agreeing and disagreeing and all of those things are part of a general mosaic that, that adds, or now I'm going to mix metaphors, um, but, but that gives substance to our ideas. Um, time flies um, 
everyone is going to think that means um, something poetic about um, the passage of the days and years and their rapidity. And it's going to take a lot of arguing to say, no, um, I meant it as what you should do when you're having a fly race. If I say time flies like an arrow, um, then it's going to be even more difficult for me to say, you know, there is a standard procedure that we've developed for timing how fast arrows go, or, go um, across a room. We could actually use that procedure to time how quickly flies go across a room as well. Um, so time flies the way you time arrows is what it would mean. But that takes a lot of argument. It's not natural. And what Dryden is essentially doing is arguing for, and it's not an easy argument to make, arguing for a natural interpretation. Um, and the idea of a natural interpretation turns out not to be a bogus, wishy-washy idea, um, although it can be. Um, it, but it, you know, it's when people say, ah, just use your common sense. Um, but a really strong argument on behalf of common sense um, which is what Dryden is doing, is actually pretty exhilarating. And, um, and that's what, he's, what, what the exhilaration for, from these poems come from. The way you can see that, to segue back to Absalom and Kittefeld, is to look at the difference in interpretive styles, something Dryden talks about in Religio Laici, the difference in interpretive styles between the good guys and the bad guys. Um, that is, um, what Dryden says in Religio Laici is, um, any detail in the Bible can be interpreted in any way. Um, in Absalom and Achitophel, he gives examples of this. Um, since Achitophel and Absalom are interpreting the story of David's youth one way, and um, the story of um, Saul's um, displacement um, one way, and David and Dryden um, are interpreting it in another way. So just to get back to, and this also lets us finish it, um, to get back to Absalom and Kittifel, if you go, we were um, around um, line 400. Um, but let's, let's go back to um, line uh, 376 or so. Um, so Kittifel has seen, is your hand up this time? No, that's okay. Um, what I'll, if, you, if you do want to raise your hand, raise it high. And then if you're not raising it high, I'm going to assume it's not up. Um, so um, Achitophel sees Absalom staggering. And so this is at line 373. So he pours fresh forces in and thus replies, um, the eternal God, supremely good and wise, imparts not these prodigious gifts in vain, what wonders are reserved to bless your reign? Against your will, your arguments have shown such virtues only given, or such virtues only gin to guide a throne. Um, so the very fact that you don't want to be king is why you should be king. Um, and that's a nicely balanced argument. Um, the fact that you think it's the, that, that you're worried that it's a wrong thing to do shows that you worry in the right way. So you should do it. Um, you're manly as well as mild, um, and it's a good thing. And um, then 
he starts um, pushing the pro-democracy argument again, which Dryden is against. Um, and the pro-democracy argument that Achitophel pushes here is, um, tis true he grants, at the start of line 383, tis true he grants the people all they crave and more perhaps than subjects ought to have. Um, so he's too nice to the people. Um, notice that, that what Dryden is making Achitophel tell an unbiased reader is that David is actually a good king because of his mildness. But Achitophel is now using that against him. Tis true he grants the people all they crave and more perhaps than subjects ought to have. For lavish grants suppose a monarch tame and more his goodness than his wit proclaim. So the fact that he's being so nice shows that he's not being very smart. Um, shows that he may be good, but he's senile. They more his goodness than his wit proclaim. And then after all, when should people strive their bonds to break if not when kings are negligent or weak? Um, that's a very carefully put couplet that a kid, I mean, Achitophel is putting it very carefully, because what he's saying is two things that sound like one thing. What he's saying is, or maybe it'd be better to say one thing that sounds like two things. What he's saying is, um, if you want to break free from a king, of course you better wait, wait till when the king is weak. If you try to do it when the king is strong, he'll crush you. So if the people want to break their bonds, um, they should do it when, the kings are, when their king is being negligent or weak. Um, but he's also saying, if you have a negligent or a weak king, it's important to get rid of him because he's not protecting you. So the couplet is one of those gives plausible deniability to the other. So the plausible claim is um, he's in over his depth. It's, we're being ruled by someone who is unable to rule us in dangerous times. Um, the fact that he's negligent or weak means that we have to get a king who's not negligent or weak. But what that's actually disguising is the more important point that he wants to make, wants um, Absalom to take in, which is you could do it. He's negligent and weak. You could do it. Um, and so that's what he's pushing there. Um, let him give on till he can give no more. The thrifty Sanhedrin shall keep him poor. That is the parliament. And every shekel which he can receive shall cost a limb of his prerogative. So um, he's weak and he's losing power. And that's really bad. And the only place that he can go now for power to the Jebusites and um, the French pharaoh's pensioners. Um, and um, um, he's going to sell all your rights. He's going to sell them um, away um, till, this is at line three, at 407, till time shall ever wanting David draw. Um, so, so if he sells your rights, then eventually perhaps we can get him to do this. Um, he will pass your doubtful title into law. He's selling everything, that's bad, but he's selling everything that's good too because now we can get him to, um, by giving him money, get him to pass the law legitimizing you and making you the next king. And if he doesn't do that, if not, the people 
have a right supreme to make their kings, for kings are made for them. Um, and that's the Hobbesian, or part of the Hobbesian um, background that we were looking at, that kings are the creation of the people, that the Leviathan, the huge whale, the huge, um, most powerful, the greatest of all um, animals is made up of individuals brought together into a unity, and the name of that unity is the king. Um, if not, the people have a right supreme to make their kings, for kings are made for them. All empires know more than power and trust, which, when resumed, can be no longer just. That is, if the people want their power back, it's no longer just for the king to keep the power that he only has in trust from the people. If the people resume their power, the king has to give it up. Succession for the general good designed in its own wrong, a nation cannot bind. So here, what Achitophel uh, is conceding is that the strange, or what to us is the strange idea that it makes sense for um, the king to be the child of the previous king, to be the firstborn son of the previous king. What sense does that make, we might ask? Um, what Achitophel is conceding is it does make some sense because it means that you, can't, you won't have a war every time a king dies. Um, if you don't have a clear rule of succession, then there's a vacuum of power every time a king dies. And that's worse than picking someone through the arbitrary fact of, um, of um, biological um, primogeniture. That may be arbitrary, but it also makes clear who the next king is. Achitophel says that's why succession was made into the law, um, in order to prevent civil war. But um, if it makes things worse, which it's about to do if James II becomes king, then it has to be stopped. So succession is good as long as it's good, but if it's not good, it's not good, is what he's saying there. Um, if altering that, the people can relieve, better one suffer than a nation grieve. So if we can change the law, it's better that one person suffer, James II, even though he's the person who's supposed to be inheriting the kingship, than the entire nation grieve because of this arbitrary law of succession. Um, what Achitophel is echoing, um, maybe he knows it, um, maybe he doesn't, um, is Pontius Pilate famously saying it is expedient that one should die for many. That is, yeah, Jesus is probably innocent, but if he's not executed, there's going to be serious trouble, um, so it's probably better that he should be executed. The Jews well know their power, ear soul, they chose, before they chose Saul as their king, God was their king, and God they durst depose. So here again, he's saying, look, he's taking a biblical moment and giving it quite a spin, but a spin which is there if you're interpreting the Bible and you can justify it. And the spin is that in the book of um, judges, the Jews said they wanted a king, and God said, that's a bad idea. And they said, we still want one, and God said, okay. 
So what Achitophel is saying is, um, see, even God, the people are allowed to um, get rid of as their king. Um, it's the people's prerogative to decide who their king is. Um, and if they can get rid of God, they sure can get rid of James II, is his argument. Obviously, the counter-argument is, but they shouldn't have gotten rid of God. That was wrong. Um, but that's not what Achitophel is insisting on. And he would have an answer to that also. Um, and then he says, and the fact that David loves you, don't let that bother you either. Tis nature's trick to propagate her kind. Our fond begetters who would never die love but themselves and their posterity. Um, so if you think he loves you, he only loves you because you're his son. Um, and therefore, that shouldn't mean anything to you either. All of everything Achitophel says has an answer, but he still puts it with what he calls several times his arts. He puts it very, very convincingly with his arts. And he says, besides, you would be doing what God did to Saul if you did this. And that's a good thing, too. So there's all sorts of reason um, to do this. Um, and you really should. And so Absalom likes this idea. He accepts what Achitophel has to say. Um, and then we get um, some consideration that we talked about before um, of how, the, how demagoguery works. And basically, the, the political idea here is that um, um, all those who are dissatisfied will, will bind together against anyone in power. If you can find someone to bind those who are dissatisfied together, the fact that they don't agree with each other matters less than the fact that they um, don't like who's in power. And that's what Achitophel is working on. For Dryden, that's what's going to eventually redress the balance. That is, that um, if all those who are out of power come into power, they'll just start fighting among themselves too. Um, it's always the case that those in power are going to be unpopular. The question is a question, again, of balance. Are they doing something right if they're unpopular on both sides? Are they doing something right if both the Catholics and the radical Protestants are against them, to go back to the issue in Religio Laici, but it's also an issue in Absalom and Achitophel. So at any rate, um, Absalom goes around and um, he um, makes his pitch to the people um, and everyone likes him, but just go to, um, do we have time for this? Not really, but go to line 752. Um, and we will, I guess we'll start from there tomorrow. But here we get Dryden's um, defense of monarchy starts in line 752 of Absalom and Kiffel. So not tomorrow, Friday, obviously. So we'll, do, we'll um, start with that on Friday. What we'll do is, is in a somewhat whirlwind way, probably finish Absalom and Kiffel and Religio Laici. But you should do the reading um, that I mentioned before from uh, page 190 to 219. Um, it's relevant, um, and we will talk about that Friday and next week. Um, I think we have 
three more, four more classes on Dryden. Is that right? Um, I believe that's right. I looked, I looked at the syllabus earlier today. But that's what we'll do. Um, so read 190 to 219. And if you want to reread Aslam and Kittafel from 752 to the end, that would be good. If you want to reread Religio Laici, that would be awesome. And uh, see you Friday.